Right. Fantasy Face Story, the next. I'm joined by Sunil Chandy. Yes. Good pronunciation, correct, yeah. to start off. Thank you for joining us. A new faculty member on the theology and what is the overall theology and worship programs? Yeah. Uh, my my job title is uh, lecturer in worship and the creative arts. Worship in the creative arts? Yeah. Sounds very exciting. Mm. Right. But uh, we start going back a few years. So what was your context growing up? Yeah, my, I think I grew up in a very ecclesial family. Um, so I was born here. Uh, my dad was a vicar uh, up in Middlesbrough and Hull in northeast of England. Um, so there was that. And then when I was fairly young, around four years old, I moved to India. Uh, so and I grew up there. And yeah, it is, uh, and I say it's ecclesial because both sides of my family have uh, priests in them. So my so my dad is a vicar. My granddad was a bishop in the Church of South India, which is an Anglican one of the an Anglican denomination. Uh, though it was a conglomeration of different Protestant denominations, essentially it's still an Anglican denomination. Um, and yeah, so and my mom's father was a priest in the Marthoma denomination, which is a reformed Syrian Orthodox uh, formation. So there was a lot of church uh, as a child, but this move to India somehow kind of cut me off in some sense because I had a lot of cult a cultural shock going there in terms of food in terms of language and so on. So like, for example, food, I mean, in, in Kerala where I grew up, the, the rice is a kind of brown rice and I didn't want brown rice. And, you know, this is my, my statement is I don't want brown rice. I want white rice like my white people. So that is a sense of which I felt there was a kind of this dislocation that is that happened as a child. And I think somehow I feel that that dislocation is something that I've had to learn to live with. Um, you know, in especially in terms of faith and so on. Um, and so I never went to Sunday school, despite being the vicar's son, um, and despite having all this kind of church thing, just because I, I just I just kind of reacted so strongly against it, even as a very little child. So, so there wasn't much pressure on you to go. Pressure, but didn't. Um, I think my parents were a bit indulgent with me because I was struggling so much or because probably they were struggling so much as well with their own kind of going into the situation which they had hoped to it was in one sense just going back home but after you leave for a few years home is never home you have to kind of remake home again so um the pressure was more from maybe the others outside kind of people or so oh why isn't why isn't he going to uh sunday school why does he bring so many toy cars to church uh, you know, why does he bring so many books to church? All those kind of questions were there. Um, how was the relationship? How did your parents deal with Syriac Orthodox Anglican background? Did they meet reasonably well? Or so it is. Yeah, it is a. It is interesting to see the different kind of marriage alliances that happen across denominations. So there is a general understanding that the, this Marthoma denomination, because it's reformed, it's much got much more of an evangelical biblical emphasis. They cross over to the other Protestant denominations and they marry into the other Syriac Orthodox denominations. But we don't do that so much. So there's 
I mean, because especially up to a couple of generations ago, most marriages were, or maybe a generation ago, marriages all arranged as such, right? So, yeah, there wasn't that kind of a, all the denominations wouldn't marry each other. So Catholics would definitely be marrying within Catholics. And um, so, yeah, so, but for my parents, it was okay. And I would say my mother was much more evangelical compared to my dad. I think my dad was a bit more broader in his outlook, uh, which is the kind of Anglican way, I suppose. <laughs> so, so yeah, so it, it that was the kind of dynamic. And so suppose it was my mother who then introduced lots of different books at home. So there were lots of comics, uh, a lot of Christian comics, um, and lot, but not just Christian books. There were lots of books. So I think there was a kind of a, um, I think that was my entry point into faith, I think. It's all these different books. Uh, even today, my kind of image that comes to me of Jesus is from an Indian comic, which is about Jesus. So, you know, lot, lots of images of Jesus was, you know, white hair, blue eyes, and so on. Um, this one had relatively fair skin, though, because there's that issue of skin color in India still, that the fair skin is the one that's appreciated. Um, but still, the you know, the India, the, the Jesus in that comic had, you know, black hair and uh, brown eyes and you know there's that image that strikes me and I think that this has kind of held me of this image within the comics when he's talking about children uh, there's this image of a child just playing with Jesus hair and so I think somehow that image is kind of stuck with me that notion of being a child on Jesus lap and playing with his hair um, because that is something I often did with my mom to play with her hair there was security in holding on to hair and so an image of jesus and being able to play with his hair was has been something that has kind of stuck with me did you go to a christian school growing up um interestingly the school was called corpus christi okay <laughs> but uh the the founder head teacher of that was an avowed atheist which is so <laughs> so it's quite it's quite bizarre uh in some senses but um, she actually, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the book, God of Small Things. It is a Booker Prize, you know, about a decade or so ago. So she's the mother of that, the author of that. So quite an interesting, a, what do you say, quite an interesting, uh, eclectic approach to education in that school. It was quite an exclusive school, about 300 students from reception to year 12. Um, and when you say, is that a Christian school, 96% of the of the children there were from Christian families with just a few odd Hindus and Muslims, which is a very odd thing because India is, you know, 98% or rather only 2% Christian, but it had to do with how the demographics kind of self-selected into that school. So... In terms of the Christian content, there wasn't anything there in the school. It was just that we were all church-going people, and, and that was it, and also different kinds of churches. And so it wasn't often that we would see each other at our churches because of that kind of, hello. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was, again, that kind of, we were all kind of siloed in our churches. So, yeah, so it is a quite a interesting and at the same time odd way of being in that sense what who we are as christians and so on 
Yeah. So in terms of your formation, uh, what what was the next steps for you? Is it do you become a Christian as a young person, or do you go off to university, or what's the next? I don't know. Um, I think I think there was this kind of pressure. Well, pressure is not the right word because it wasn't a very evangelical outlook. But at the same time, a lot of the books I was reading was very bad, and so that was quite exciting. But at the same time, I. I just didn't, because I didn't go to Sunday school, I didn't go to any of the summer camps and all that. So that opportunity as such to make a step never really arose. Um, but it wasn't as though I wasn't praying or I was really interested in talking about God with my parents um, and would would kind of uh, think about, oh, what does it mean? And, you know, that idea of who am I and so on. I, I was always reflective in that sense. Um, and then once, and it was only when thinking back when I was pre- uh, preparing for the right word, when I, when I thought about this, that actually I had a dream of, and it's this one strange dream of kind of pre-prepared images of God, but somehow I think God may be transforming it, which was, I was playing with God in the attic. You know, that idea of God being someone is up there, the attic. But someone I was up there in the attic, and then we were playing and just running about, and which is such an odd thing, also. So, and he was wearing this white robe as well and had long hair. So, all the kind of classic imagery of God, but somehow I think God maybe kind of transformed it, just kind of say, okay, there's more to this image, there's more to that idea. So, I've always kind of had that idea of, oh, somehow God is, wants to kind of do stuff with me or you know, kind of kind of enable me to do things. So there's that that was always kind of there at the uh underneath. Um but in terms of actual kind of formation in terms of faith, I think maybe it was when I first went for confirmation classes, which I'd actually come back to my to my friends, I did confirmation much later. I was 18. Um uh I went to college, I went to another city, Bangalore, which was had much many more kind of different denominations and there was more interaction of the Christianity in that city. And it was in that that place where the Methodist pastor there really engaged with me in kind of questions and so on. And it wasn't, I didn't make a kind of step of faith as such at the time, but I think because part of me, for me, faith, there's a kind of, I'm someone who kind of thinks, likes to think through stuff and the thinking excites me also. And that the emotion comes out of the thinking, if that makes any sense. Um, and so um, I took that step. And again, I was doing a lot of music, a lot of rock music, and then thinking through Christian stuff. Um, and then before that, also growing up in Kerala, there were a lot of these Christian music events which were really grabbing me. Um, one of the earliest ones was done by a blind orchestra. And the drummer took this solo, and I was like, wow you know what's happening i was i was taken to a different kind of a place then again thinking well, what has happened here um and and my mother was very much into music um uh, and she would sing and she would sing really loudly also in church and you know there were times i would tell my mom ma ma yes you sing too loud and she would just in the breath, in between a verse, you just say, I like singing, and then continue on. <laughs> so, you know, there was that also that, um, 
I think I, I'm, I'm a bit shy in that, to express in that way, but my mother wasn't. So at least there was an example there. Um, and there were, again, to be involved in music was quite important from that age. Um, and that was what allowed me to enter these spaces, I think, of faith and so on. And then to say, okay, what is happening here? Um, and there was uh, certain people, uh, there's one person called Joy Mon, who really encouraged me and said, you know, there is a lot more to this music than what you think it is. There is more to the, to the songs we're singing and so on. And it wasn't a kind of, uh, and it was done in such a gentle, welcoming way. I was, and I think that's what led me through, that I was intrigued. There was a sense of intrigue as to, oh, what is going on here in the songs and music and so on. Um, so I got confirmed at this Methodist church. So I, so I grew up in this Anglican, Syria, Orthodox thing, confirmed Methodist church. And then a place where I took my faith, where would, I wouldn't say again, I, I find maybe to use the language of being saved a bit difficult because I can't identify a point as such. But where I can say I took my faith seriously was in a vineyard church. So, you know, is that, I think it's, uh, for me, I'm, I'm glad that all these different church traditions have formed me. Uh, and so the, in the Vineyard Church, it was again, there was someone there from America called Bill who was leading the music. And he was just a welcoming, gentle person. And he said, do you want to come and play? And I said, okay. And I hadn't really thought about faith or even the kind of, charismatic parts of it but it was just I got involved welcomed and I played and so sometime during that period um, I said oh I need to take this more seriously and that was a place where I said okay I'm taking a step yeah was that in Bangalore or in Kerala or was that were you elsewhere that was now? another city <laughs> Chennai which is a city on the east coast and why were you in Chennai? Is that university or? Yeah. So I did some, uh, my first kind of university degree in Bangalore, I've studied too much. Um, <laughs> not that it's made a difference much, but, and then in Chennai, I went to do a postgraduate diploma in mass communication. <laughs> mass communication? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. In Bangalore, I studied journalism, psychology and literature. And then Chennai studied this mass communication. <laughs> um, yeah, and then my hope was to kind of do some writing and journalism, but that got waylaid. For some reason, I didn't get, I'd got two very good internships in two very good places, and neither of them somehow happened. And then I got back called into music, and I had a very good um, job as a, as a jazz musician. Not that I can actually play that much jazz, but it wasn't a jazz band in a jazz restaurant. Uh, and yeah, and that was, and I did a lot of music that year, performing with rock bands, um, fusion bands, as an Indian, Indian Western fusion band and so on. Um, and at that time, a prospectus came from this country, um, sent by one of my dad's friends. And in that was this music course, um, which was again, again intriguing. Oh, what's happening here? And the odd thing was that the page next to the musicals was upside down. One of those strange printing things. The page had been upside down. It was like, oh, <laughs> so again, it's that kind of sense of I guess life is going to be turned upside down happening. 
And I thought, okay, sh- um, you know, I plugged my bass guitar into a cassette recorder <laughs> and recorded a cassette and sent it over here. And, and but there was no, there's no money. And so we were wondering what to do. And, and I was just, again, thinking through what, oh, what's going to happen next? Because I wasn't sure what I was doing in my life. The music was going well. I was making lots of money and so on. But I wasn't sure. And then I, I was making lots of money, but not enough to come here. And then I thought, oh, what, what's going to happen? And then I had this, I don't get this sense very often, but really the sense of God saying, well, what do you want to do? So it wasn't a sense of, oh, everything will be fine, nothing. But it is it is thrown onto me because I think I do get carried along like, I, like I've done all these subjects, you know, this is just kind of landed to different things. So it is very much as, okay, what do you want to do? And uh, yeah, I remember that. I was walking along this road and I said, well, all right, then I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I want to do it. You know, so it is like saying that, that it wasn't C.S. Lewis's thing of being dragged and kicking and screaming as such, but it was like, yeah, kind of first a shrug of the shoulder and then, okay, yes, I do want to do it. And I was walking back to the house where I was staying and I got to the house and there was a letter there and, you know, about half the money had come in. So that was quite a profound moment, a profound event, I think. And then, yeah, and then somehow managed to get here. This is 1999. Um, And it is an amazing, amazing ride here. It kind of blew my kind of mind open, I think through my spirit open as well in that, in the interactions with the different people from all over the world here, the teachers, uh, the things we learned about music. And that it was here that I first got that idea of inter- what the integration of music and faith was. I could articulate it uh, in that there was something about music expressing faith, you know, and then faith showing itself through music, that interrelation was really brought out uh, in coming here. So was that kind of a a natural step on then towards further academic, towards PhDs and these things? No, because, you know, I was was never academic in the sense that I did badly at school. I did, I just got by. uh, And it all, I suppose, made sense because recently I found out that... um, I have ADHD and that makes sense. I mean, I was all over the place. And again, it shows because I've done lots of different things again. Um, And so academically, I never, in terms of that academia writing and making a proper argument and, you know, kind of writing from A point A to B, it was never there. I would always go A to Z to D. And it was all over the place. I basically got through here because... I did the music bits quite well. <laughs> I kind of got through the written stuff and then did the music bits quite well. Um, so I, I I was interested, I suppose. There was a sense of, oh, it's it's nice to learn more, but I thought I'm not. It's not something I can do. I'm just going to go back to India. At that time, I'd met my to-be wife also, Louisa. And we got married in the soon after graduation. Um and then we headed off to India to work. Uh, I went to work in the Methodist Church, which confirmed me. 
Um, so that was my first two years after college here, uh, working there. And that was a very difficult experience. Um, at the same time, it was an experience that was kind of forewarned, but I suppose it being the kind of person I didn't really think about it. It but it wasn't it wasn't a forewarning as in a particular forewarning to me, let's say, but our graduation uh, address was given by Alec Mortier, the, the theologian who was the father of Steve Mortier, who was, who was teaching at the time. Uh, and what, what I got from his sermon, now I don't know whether I'm misremembering it, <laughs> it's entirely possible, but what I got from the sermon was the idea of the wilderness, that it was better to be with God in the wilderness rather than to be in this nice place. So... I didn't, I thought that was an intriguing thing, but I never thought much of it. But what we went to in India was a, was a kind of wilderness because um, it was a combination of I wasn't ready for the job and the job wasn't, or the church wasn't really ready for me. Uh, it was the first time they had a music director or worship leader, how we want to term it. And so that was a profound time of, of wilderness and kind of, um, worked for about two years there and then had to leave. It was quite a difficult time. Uh, and so at that time is when I first, one of the books that comforted us through that time for both of us was uh, Rowan Williams' book, Silence and Honey Cakes, which is all about the desert spirituality, to think about what the desert was and so on. Um, that was, um, and so I suppose Rowan Williams gave an articulation of difficult times, theology and faith, which is really appealing to me. It made sense because I'd gone to the situation and whatever I'd learned here didn't seem to make sense. I couldn't kind of seem to connect it all together. So, but, you know, again, God was with us in that wilderness, in that, what I would say, silence, um, because it's silence and honey cakes. And so I suppose to think of, me being this music person here doing quite well and then going there and trying to do music in a church. And then that was in some sense silenced. But then God is present in that silence. Um, and there's there might not be any articulation coming from the silence, but that presence is somehow enough. Um, which goes back to the Elijah story, of course, about the uh, RSV translates as the sheer silence. Um, but out of that very difficult kind of period, then I basically went back to this college that I studied journalism at, that, which is run by a group of Catholic fathers. And they said, oh, what are you up to? I said, well, I'll just stop working at this church. They said, oh, do you want to work here? Um, we want someone to look after the students' kind of cultural activities. So there's no music course as such, but... Um, the, we want somehow to kind of oversee them. And so my job description was imbibe good values through music. <laughs> that is it. Uh, <laughs> and so there it was kind of a time of rebuilding and kind of slowly kind of finding out, okay, what my ministry was. It was, what does this mean to imbibe good values? And so it was about then conduct, what happened was, especially the choir became quite a important part of my work there. 
because the choir was where students from all the different courses could come together and anyone who liked singing could join in. So there were lo lots of people from different faiths, you know, there was Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, and all were together. And so my question is, okay, then now what am I doing with this group? Um, and most of what happened with that group, the kind of focus point would always be Christmas, because that's generally where choirs get to shine, isn't it? And it was very tiring then to say, okay, what do we have for Christmas? And then, oh, it's a whole bunch of hymns, which are mostly Victorian, um, or kind of early 20th century, which has to do with the winter and the snow uh, and bells and so on. I'm saying, oh, this is, this is very frustrating because I don't think this is where what it should be. And so I went back to the stories of, the, of Christmas in the Gospels of Matthew uh, and Luke. And I started writing songs um, for, for this group uh, of students which initially was about 2025. 20, uh, by the time I left, it was about uh, 70 or so. Um, and it was then going back to the gospel stories and to see, okay, wow. And, you know, going back and when you're trying to write songs as you write, and this is true with anything, when you start putting things down, the thing itself reveals it back to you. As you write things down, the writing then talks back to you. And this is what happened with me for the songs, as I wrote the songs, the songs then talk back to me about, you know, about these characters that, you know, I've read these stories in these texts so many times, but they then spoke back to me through the songs that I was inspired to write, I think. So God really kind of, kind of moved there. And it was amazing how the students responded to the songs, because for whatever reason, they en enjoyed seeing them. And I always think there's, some songs are meant to be, be performed and some songs are meant to be heard. And I think these are songs that are meant to be performed. Uh, because some of the uh, listeners of the song say, yeah, it's good, but you guys seem to have, be having a great time on stage. So it's, uh, somehow that the performance of the song is somehow, uh, there was something kind of inspired about doing that, I think. And so I got to write a lot of, uh, well, say a lot, maybe about, 12 or 13 songs across the four years I was at this job. Um, and it was, um, and a lot of students, I mean, I'm still in touch with a lot of these students from different backgrounds. Um, and I was just glad to have that opportunity to allow the students to engage with these texts in, in because I, I tried to keep as close as I could to the, to the texts and to, you know, talking about Mary's, you know, talks of justice, you know, the richer sent away empty and so on, all those kind of things to say, okay, there's all these other kind of dynamics happening in the Christmas story. Um, and so I wrote songs for Easter as well. I wrote, wrote lots of different other things as well. Um, at this time, our daughter was born also. So that was a joy and uh, again, a kind of new thing to happen. Um, and then we realized, I suppose, as a family, we weren't sure whether we wanted to stay on in India just because of the, maybe the racial dynamics, um, and especially being a, being a girl growing up as a white person. You know, there are lots of different dynamics that are there which we weren't too comfortable with. Um, and or we 
thought that it would be better to for her to grow up here. And so we moved back again. So this is, you know, so again, this is this idea of this dislocation, which seems to be part of the wandering nature of faith, isn't it? That the Bible so often says that idea of dispersal or moving around. Um, and coming back was also another move into another wilderness, actually. Um, your wife's first time coming back? Sorry? Was you, your wife's first time coming back? To the UK from having the no, we had visited once after our daughter was born. Right. Uh, yeah, but, but this was a move. Back. This is the move, full move. Yeah. Back. Yeah. Um, and moved in. Didn't know where we were going to live. Nothing. We just there was no job. Nothing. We just came back. Um. And I suppose the even though it was a wilderness, the one. Assuredly, God thing that happened was we got a place to stay in South London. And, you know, we, when we flew back in, we just went to stay with Louise's mom in Exeter for a little bit. And she had been looking for houses and found an area which had a decent rent at the time anyway. And then this house came up on what is known as Christian Flatshare. I don't know that website is still there. <laughs> And it was a house next to a church, which Louisa said, okay, this looks like a nice church in this area, which seems to be cheap on rent. And the person mentioned this church. And it is right next to, and Louisa had all these things. She wanted a park next to the house. She wanted a garden behind the house. She wanted a gas hob, you know, <laughs> all these kind of specificities. And we went to this house and it was, it's right next to Crystal Palace Park with a big garden behind. And as it turned out that that is the only, that uh, we were the only ones to look at that house. Mm. And that is the only house we looked at. So that was definitely God thing to say, okay, something, something quite important has happened here. But, you know, it was, it is like that maybe that, notion of having this big event okay i've moved i'm here and it was a special special event that has got us here but then nothing then is that again wandering in the wilderness kind of an idea uh and i think i went through a cultural shock again um and i fell out with music completely literally kind of fell out in that listening to music would make me nauseous um so that was quite difficult also even for a family because music was everything in the between three of us my daughter my older daughter and wife there was there was a lot of music in the house and the, now we couldn't even play music in the house allowed anyway um but that led me to kind of where i got to with my phd because what happened was I got involved in sound itself, sound art. Because in 2010, the Turner Prize, which is the big prize at the Tate, um, was given to a sound artist for the first time, where she put these um, speakers singing a lament under the bridges, under the bridges of Glasgow, of the River Clyde. And there were songs of folk songs of lament of four 
So the folk song itself was a lament of um, a woman singing for her husband going off to, into the sea for fishing. But she had reconfigured it as a lament for all the dark things that happened under these bridges, whether it was the suicides, the drug dealings, prostitution, all those things. So I thought, for me, that was a very impactful moment to say that, oh, wow, you can take sound music out into the spaces and you can lament, you can grieve for these things. And it was like a re kind of a renewal, I think, of, of a kind of artistic impulse in me to say, oh, wow, this is this might be something to pursue. And then um, kind of sat on that for a couple of years, but then went and did an MA in sound art, which was, um, again, the kind of configuration of how that happened was, again, quite amazing in that the 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 leader of the sound art well, I mean I don't know the generational thing but academics in the secular world of of my generation or slightly above seem much more open to talking about religion than maybe ten or fifteen years before that where they're much more anti-religion and so the leader of the MA she was really open to kind of hearing my kind of theological background and saying, okay, you can bring your theological stuff into this course and it'll be really interesting to see how that works out. And so in the MA, that's how it was. I was, you know, as I was kind of there as a theologian as such, even though, you know, I'm not in that an academic theologian in the classical sense, but I was bringing in the ideas of faith, religion, and it was such an interesting, receptive kind of a, atmosphere where people were willing to kind of talk about these notions of faith and notions of saying, okay, people have um, experiences of faith and religion and spirituality and so on. And so I then explored very much about um, the voice and the speaking of voice and the ordinary sounds that we found fine and how the ordinary sounds reveal faith to us. And so at the end of that year, I did a advent calendar and sound where uh, because advent is a time of waiting it's a time of waiting for the birth of christ also for waiting for the second coming um i did a each day um the idea was to have each day a, one speaker would have one sound of waiting so whether it's sounds of waiting at the bus stop uh, doing the checkout I'll, I'll go and record all these sounds, waiting for my waiting to pick my daughter up. Um, recorded even a bus which said Wait Street somewhere near Peckham. <laughs> There's a Wait Street. So on each day, so the 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 MA project had all these twenty four speakers hung up. Um, but then I did it in the church, and each day I'll go and install one speaker. The next day, a second speaker like that. So over 24 days, 24 speakers would come. And eventually this, it was hung up on a, uh, on a, on a truss. And eventually the ladder would then, what I'd call Jacob's ladder would sink down. And on the last day, it touches the floor. That was the idea of it. But the whole point is then to express faith and engage faith through the ordinary, through sound. Um, and it was then 
in that exploration, I was thinking, okay, now what do I do after this MA? Because this is really interesting. I don't think many people are talking about it. And around this time, I came across this um, book in the in a Wesley Owens bookstore. Remember them? <laughs> uh, in, a, in the secondhand bookstore in Croydon. Um, it is called Whispering the Word, Hearing Women's Voices in the Old Testament. And in that, uh, it's by a theologian called Jacqueline Lapsley. And that she talked about the many-voiced nature of scripture and the polyphony of scripture, drawing on Mikhail Bakhtin's idea of polyphony and so on. And that really then caught me. And I was thinking, oh, I want to do something with the Bible. I want, I want scripture to be engaged with through sound because, you know, we are mostly reading it, you know, privately, silently, but there is something in bringing scripture out aloud to sound, to engage and to be excited by it. And so that got me going. And so I joined the PhD and that's how I, you know, that's where the academic route happened, so to speak, through this kind of wilderness time of falling out of music, getting into sound, and then coming into engaging with scripture through sound. Can you listen to music again now? Yes, I can. Okay, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so PhD and now now here and lecturing. Yes, here lecturing, yeah. Are you doing other things alongside your lecturing? Here. At the minute, I'm doing my final corrections of the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I got through my viva, so that's good. Uh, so there's that. There's that. I'm also doing some little bit a module with Roehampton University as well. Yeah. Do you have plans for the future of where all these threads from the past might lead you to contribute to church and society and things? Um. Yeah, I would. I would, I mean, in that ideal, fantastical world, I would love for people to get engaged with their faith through sound more because sound is something that's always there, which we don't maybe interrogate so much because obviously we're now a very visual culture. Um, and there is a shift that happens when you go to a visual culture that you lose certain things. Um, and this has been discussed in different academic things of moving from an oral culture to a print culture, for example, or a writing culture. There are things you lose, the dynamism, the kind of communal nature of sound and things like that. So I would like, um, I think my contribution, I would want people to engage in, particularly with scripture, because scripture was written to be read aloud. Mm. It was meant to be read aloud to people. So there are certain there are certain dynamics that happen in that that people are hearing, they're mishearing, and they're hearing again. They repeatedly hear, or they repeatedly not hear. You know all those kind of things. Um, and I think there will be a more interesting engagement to kind of then go back in, in to kind of hear scripture in that particular way. Um, and actually. Um, I am supposed to produce a book. It should have been out two years ago, but it hasn't happened yet. It's it's almost done. Uh, going to come out through uh, Sam Hargreaves' mm -hmm. Engage Worship, um, which is a kind of a resource book for churches of my kind of PhD stuff. Mm -hmm. 
or just giving people, okay, why don't you try reading scripture like this, you know? So very simply, like you do in Anglican churches, you know, one person, one side reads and the other side reads, but then making it more complex and so on and bringing different texts together to literally see how texts kind of talk to one another. Um, so, yeah, I think that's hopefully something I can pursue, yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Sunil. Thank you. Enjoy your faculty-based story. <laughs>